We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Eliza Knox, a non-executive director, former executive at financial services and tech companies, and author of Don't Quit Your Day Job, The Six Mind Shifts You Need to Rise and Thrive at Work. Elisa characterizes herself as an American with a sense of adventure. She's lived in Australia and now makes her home in Singapore. Elisa explains that she's gone through three stages in her career, which she likens to software updates. 1.0 was her work at financial services companies like Charles Schwab and Visa. 2.0 was an executive in sales and operations at Google, Twitter, and Cloudflare. And 3.0, where she currently is, talking all about what she learned and helping others while spending time doing things she loves. Eliza wrote, don't quit your day job after experiences mentoring others. People regularly seek her out for advice on their professional lives. She's distilled some of her wisdom and insights into the book, organized around six mind shifts. Using stories from the people she's helped, she illustrates Ways ambitious professionals can shift their perspective in order to get where they want to go. Now, let's get better together. Aliza Knox, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, I'm excited to talk with you because you're the author of Don't Quit Your Day Job. You're also a non-executive director at several companies, which I find super fascinating because you know, I've been a director at a startup or been on the board. And like I was telling you a little bit before, a lot of the folks that are like down in the bowels of a company really don't understand like what goes on at the very high level and the strategy and the challenges and struggles sometimes you guys have to deal with. Um, but we'll we'll talk all about all that sort of stuff and about the book, which I'm really fascinated about. 
um, because of what's going on in the world today. But before we get to all that, as I always like to say, I'm a pretty boring host because I only have one question. And that one question is, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Sure. Well, I think Henry Kissinger said, do you have any questions for my answer? So I can just give you my <laughs> one answer. All right. I love we it. Can, we can go from there. So I guess I would say I'm an American with a sense of adventure. So I grew up in the U.S. And um, actually, I'll I'll just rewind a bit. I, I have learned since I've been in tech, and I know you were in tech your whole life, but it was a switch for me to describe my career as a series of software releases. So 1.0 was Boston Consulting Group and Financial Services, which included Amex, Visa, and Schwab. And um, the beginning of that was in the US, but I, I really wanted to live overseas. My language skills are non-existent. I barely eke it out with English. And uh, having spent six months of college in the UK, which was fun, but uh, cold and rainy and a lot of soggy vegetables, I, I chose to make my next adventure start in Australia. So um, during 1.0, I moved to Australia and subsequently I have just stayed on that adventure and basically lived in Australia and Singapore most of my adult life. 2.0 was tech. So Google, Twitter, Cloudflare at Google running online sales um, and operations for Asia and a Twitter and Cloudflare running all of Asia for those two companies. Um, and then 3.0, I've been in for about a year and a half. I think I'd call it figuring out what to do when I grow up. But in the meantime, while I sort that out, I've written a book, which is called Don't Quit Your Day Job, because that's a nice catchy title for the publisher during the Great Resignation. The real title should be Six Mind Shifts to Rise and Thrive mm -hmm. for those of us who've kind of spent our lifetime at other people's companies. And, and we can talk a bit about that and how entrepreneurs might might think about using that. Um, I do quite a bit of mentoring and I um, sit on some boards. And I play badminton and go to yoga a bit more to, more yeah. than I used to. Some of my favorite <laughs> things to do. Cool. Badminton and yoga. You know, I- Not uh... at the same time. Not at the same time. <laughs> Hey, maybe that's a new trend. Badminton yoga. How cool would that be? That would be, uh, I don't know, probably be pretty hard to play, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I play a little bit of badminton with my my future stepdaughter. And uh, yeah, interesting game. Like I I never got it, you know, and, and I, again, because I, I used to play tennis as a kid and some other things. So it's not as, well... Not as fast paced, but then, but then again, the skill level is a little bit different. I mean, it's interesting that that kind of there are some parallels, obviously, to all sorts of sports and you know and and business. And what's interesting is the that it's not exactly adjacent, but some of the same skills apply. And I think that's the same thing with folks working in a company or working for someone else on the entrepreneur space as well. They're different. Maybe some different skill sets, but there's some fundamentals that I think are really important. And I'm curious what these mind shifts are because I, I my guess is, and again, I haven't I haven't read your full book yet. I just you know perused it a little bit. Um, but I'm curious, why don't you tell us a little about these mind shifts and how you know how you came about with them? And and obviously, you know, you worked at Twitter, which we won't talk about because we all know what's going on with Twitter right now. But I mean, 
take us through some of them because I'm, I'm fascinated to see the parallels between all sorts of different kinds of companies and just you know generally being better at work. Sure. Well, the way I came to writing the book is that I spend a lot of time mentoring people, sort of what I would call coffee mentoring. People call me up and I think because, you know, I've, I've worked a long time and I'm a woman and I've been at tech companies and um, led, you know, sales and marketing groups, people come to ask advice and they usually come when they're at a crossroads in their career, when they have to make a decision, they don't call me up and say, Hey, can you go out with me for an hour? Because I'm just so, I love what I do, um, which is too bad. And uh, so I usually get it when it's, you know, sort of a problem. And there are two main problems with this approach to mentoring people. So one is I don't really like coffee. I drink decaf latte. And so, you know, and that's still embarrassing and very American. And so, you know, I I can't go out for coffee, um, you know, ad nauseum. And second of all, the one thing I learned from tech, and I'm sure all the entrepreneurs know this better than I do, is you have to be scalable. So it is totally not scalable to go out repeatedly um, for an hour at a time uh, with an individual. And so while I still do that, I thought I was hearing a lot of common themes. And so I wrote it down um, with the help of a ghostwriter who's not a ghost because I put her on the cover, Wendy Paris, because even though I write a lot for work, it's all bullet points. And so, you know, I did I did get some help. And the book is basically stories. It's sort of these six mind shifts. And then each one has power perspectives and clear action items at the end of a chapter. And I think it's probably includes three dozen stories about a little skewed towards women, maybe 60%, a little skewed towards tech, a little skewed towards international, because those are the stories that I know. Um, and they're real stories. Most of them have the person's name. Few of them have been disguised to protect the innocent, as they say. Yes. Um, and, and so that's that's how the book came about. Um, what, what I think the main theme is a lot of people stress about things at work or their job that they they may not need to, and also maybe don't make enough time for some other things. Um, I think if I had to pick one topic, it's, which isn't a chapter in itself, it actually comes under uh, connection trumps tech savvy, even in tech. Uh, I talked to most people about building a personal board of directors. So that was not my idea. I think it's been talked about before. But many, many people over time look for a mentor. And I think even entrepreneurs look for mentors, and there are lots of programs set up uh, to try to find mentors or to try to, you know, sometimes it's your chairman. And sometimes it works. You find one person whom you can talk to who kind of knows enough to help you get through everything you're going through, whether that's on the personal side or managing personal work or actually building your business. But I think often that doesn't happen. Um, Some companies assign people to be mentors and sometimes that works, but often the chemistry isn't right. I think mentorship comes about very gradually and very organically. And there are definitely some people who I've mentored, you know, probably through their whole lives, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. And when you think about it, the pressure that puts on the mentor, the one person to really feel like, you know, they can advise you on everything. It's it's pretty scary. I mean, to be honest, if somebody asks me to mentor them, I usually sort of run a mile. But if somebody just says, can I speak to you about a specific topic? Like, how, how do I um, 
construct my engineering team if really one of the most important things about it is QA, but that's not big enough to stand on its own? Or how do I move from financial services to tech like you did? Or it could be a number of questions where I feel like I have a concrete answer. And so when you look, you mentioned boards of directors before, and when you look at how people build boards of directors, the main idea is that the board brings a variety of different perspectives and different expertise. And most boards still do not go out to executive search, but when they do, what they usually do is they make a matrix with maybe industry across the top and function down the side. So maybe the industry is real estate or film or um, software, and maybe the expertise is SaaS or human resources, the functional expertise, sorry, or um, network building. And so maybe they'll say, oh, our gap is here. You know, we really need somebody who understands film and HR. We need to find someone who fits that. And so for you as an individual, uh, if you're not an entrepreneur, not building a company, I think you think about four or five people. You probably don't want a board as big as 12, where you're going to collect them over time, get to know them. I think you generally have to be interested in what they're doing too. It can't just be Machiavellian. And in the book, I've written a lot about where to find these people, how to find them. And the reason that you do that rather than just asking a point in time question is that they get to know you over time. They know a little bit of background. And so when you're asking questions two or three or four years from now, they have some context. They understand a little bit about you. They're a little invested in you. You know, they don't feel responsible for you, but they're invested. And it's interesting. I do work with entrepreneurs. I advise a couple of them. I'm on some... um, very small boards now. My next door neighbor is a founder and I kind of work with him a lot. And there's a big challenge, which is when you're pre-seed, seed, series A, the last thing you want is a real board of directors. You see it as overhead, as cost, as interference. And so what you end up with on boards is funders and founders. And so maybe you don't want to expand your real board yet, although I am working with the Singapore Institute of Directors to try to get help startup boards figure out when to add directors, because there's been a couple catastrophes where unicorns have fallen apart for things like recently in Asia uh, with Sequoia, there was a unicorn um, that has hit hard times because they didn't pull together financials for over two years. So if you had a board of an independent board of directors, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Somebody yeah, would have that shall not pass. No, right. That somebody <laughs> no, no, would have, no. you know, it passed because the funders wanted this company to grow and the founders were busy doing other things. But you know, an independent would have said, Oh my God, like you can't do this. But that's that's very stark. But you know, sometimes it's time to add independence a little bit earlier. So you start getting some perspectives. But even if you don't want them on your official board, like I know my neighbor Simon collects people who kind of give him advice. He um He's got a gaming company called Mighty Bear, which is doing tremendously well, family-friendly gaming company out of Asia. And, you know, he comes to me sometimes for HR advice because that's not his thing. You know, he's built games over years. And I'm not an HR expert, but I have led bigger teams and understand a bit about um, running teams where you never get to see each other because people work all over the world. And so he'll just come seek me out. And we've been doing that together for several years. So when he asks me a question, I know something about the company, I can add some value. So even for entrepreneurs, and even if it's not their official board of directors, they might sometimes want to build this personal board of directors. 
Yeah, I mean, in in politics, they call it the kitchen cabinet. I don't know if you're from that, if you've yeah. done any political yeah. stuff. And yeah. when I was on a campaign for the now mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, one of the guys that was on it with us, uh, we called ourselves her small council after Game of Thrones because he was a Game of Thrones fan. So right, it, it's but it was it's interesting. Dear, it's actually a really good point. I think the the help, the diversity of help. Because, I mean, being an entrepreneur is a hard job. There's a lot of challenges and struggles, and you need people around you to help you. Like, there, there's no doubt in my mind that no, no, none of these solo founders or these geniuses that just come up with something. It's all a bunch of, you know, BS because it takes, takes a lot of people to do it. And I like your point about, you know, not just having one mentor that would, um, like, that's like completely dedicated to you. They're, they're invested in, of course, your success, but not not this complete dedication. Because I think the diversity is important, <clears throat> even in both skill set, attitude, and just the way you look, and you know, and and your your life experience is also a good point of diversity as well. So I'm curious if that's something that's what you're trying to do on this board found or this foundation that's talking about, you know, non-executive directors or boards, it, there is always a big push for diversity in companies, diversity on boards. And I'm just curious how, how that, how that gets set up. I mean, you're primarily doing that in Asia. I'm just, you know, and we do, of course we do it here with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we've got all that sort of stuff. How does it, how do you think about that? What, what are some of the things that people should like think about and set up? Yeah, let me, um, let me address two points there. So one thing that occurred to me that I hadn't mentioned when you were talking about uh, having people to talk to, this board of directors is very distinct, I think, from moral support, right? So there's moral ah, support very good, people very good too. Point. Very good point, <clears throat> there's right. moral support people too. And maybe there's some overlap, but I'll give you an example of a, a worker, not a not a founder. But I have mentored somebody for years who's in the book, you know, with whom I've become very good friends named Susie Nicoletti, who's worked for me in a lot of places. But when she was at Google, before she was working for me, she was up for promotion and she was in sales and she didn't get it. And she now is, I guess, an entrepreneur. She runs um, Asia for Yachtpo, which is an Israeli startup. And she didn't get the promotion. And this was despite being a great salesperson, having great relationships with clients, really knocking her numbers out of the park, you know, just being fantastic. And so all of her Google colleagues and her friends were like, oh, Susie, that's terrible. You know, you should have definitely gotten that promotion. This is a travesty, you know, miscarriage of justice. You'll get it on the next round. You're fantastic, right? Which is great to hear. It makes you feel good when you're disappointed. But somebody she knew outside who was older, and had been um, on the client side, said to her, you know, it's. I can see it's really disappointing. And I do think you're great at your job. And I'm a little bit surprised. But, you know, one thing I noticed, Susie, is that, and I'm obviously oversimplifying this. Susie's not, I'm going to make it sound more stark than it was. And Susie's actually very good as you can, you know, she rose to run Twitter Australia, New Zealand, and now running Yachtpo for Asia. Um, he said to her, when you talk about your work, you talk about your clients, you talk about Google, and you talk about your relationship with all of that. What I don't hear you talk about is your team. I mean, you're not a manager yet. And so maybe you don't, you know, you just don't think about it. But if I were your manager, 
I might worry a little bit about whether you're including your team, whether you're a team builder, whether you're collaborative. And this person, this older person said to her, I know from knowing you as an individual that you are super collaborative and that you love your team. But it's just interesting in the way you're speaking that you might be conveying an attitude that would make somebody worry about making you a manager, right? And so that person, I mean, Susie hadn't kind of thought about it as a board of directors, but that's the role that he played for her, which was to be straightforward, give her a nugget to act on that her friends and family weren't either wouldn't notice probably and might not tell her. And so that's kind of the difference between board of directors and moral support. I think you need both. You need your, totally. you know, your running club, your totally. um, family, your friends, whatever it is. But so, so I just wanted to, to mention that in terms of inclusion. So it's very interesting in Asia, the work I'm doing with the Singapore Institute of Directors is really more for them about helping startups get mature before they're ready to list. Because what you see in most cases and this happens to me as a as a non-executive director. You get these calls from headhunters going, so-and-so's IPOing, they need a board of directors. And it's literally, you know, the six months. And, you know, obviously it reflects the times we've been in. Right. It's not going to happen over the next couple no. of years. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it might happen when IPOs start again, which is, right. okay, we don't want anybody on our board um, until we IPO. And as a board member on some private companies, I understand that because you like to have a small board and be really nimble and move. But on the other hand, on these private companies, they're small, but we, and we have small boards and we move, but we do have independence as opposed to just like the PE firm or the VC firm and the founders. Yeah. And that seems to help, Um, you know, the things that the board members do are everything from maybe some checks on like hey, this doesn't seem like proper governance to me, too, just based on what I've done, too. Very much more hands-on uh, than in the public sphere. I helped find a new CEO. You know, normally we go out to search, didn't, didn't need to do that this time. Yeah. Um, could be some rainmaking. Mm-hmm. So there are there are uh, elements to why you would have something of an independent board before the last five seconds before you IPO. Yeah, and so I... That's, I totally agree with you. I don't, I, that whole, like, we can't move fast. We have people that are independent or that's just a total absolute cop-out. Like I've never seen that as being something that's, you know, that way at all. So that's just nuts. Yeah. That's actually a very good point. But the in the in five the realm, seconds before, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick, yeah. quick, we're quick, just quick, quick. writing the We documents. need one. Here, can we sign yeah, you we up? A, and you're like, there's, what? A, there's a blank space in our document. <laughs> can you send the picture and the in your bio? Yeah, can I get the headshot in the bio real quick? <laughs> yeah. Like, what? No. Seriously, it it happens. Um, but in the DEI space, so it is different in Asia, right? And because and and what was quite interesting was after you know, the very upsetting George Floyd incident, the Silicon Valley firms tended to roll out a lot more training. Um, And I had this conversation with a number of my colleagues in Asia. So we all got training in Black Lives Matter, um, had people, you know, Latinx people speaking, um, which is fantastic, but not very relevant. And actually for a lot of my teams in Asia, I had to try to do some quick kind of U.S. history lessons on who are these groups and why does it matter? I mean, not that people in Asia are uneducated, but if you're 21 or 22 at a tech firm and grew up in Singapore or Thailand, it's not your major area of focus. Well, yeah, it's just a different 
It's a different, yeah, agreed. No, I mean, it, you know, it's so fascinating you say that because there's context that not a lot of people really understand that context. So yeah, continue on. That's fascinating. No, but so, but I think everywhere in the world, people have recognized, look, if we could scan everybody's brains and really understand how people thought, and maybe that will happen, you could, in theory, have a board of 10 people who look exactly the same, right? You know, doppelgangers, but think differently. But we don't know how to do that yet. You know, I've got a growth mindset. I think it's, you know, we don't know how yet. Um, Someday, maybe we will. But in the meantime, I think diversity is a proxy for they're going to come at this problem in different ways. They're a different age group. They grew up in a different era. They grew up in a different country. They're a different gender. So they've had, you know, been reacted to or responded to in different ways than other people. And that's what gives us the diversity of thought at a board level. Or as you were saying, you know, even in founder groups, whether it's your team or your co-founders, the fact that you can come up with more than one approach tends to help you build a more resilient business, right? And so... Um, I think that's what boards are trying to do. And Asia has the same issue. There's been a lot of a focus on gender diversity on boards. Um, there are many more family-dominated or family-run companies in Asia. Um, and so there's been a lot of move amongst those companies to add outsiders, you know, which gives diversity. So there's lots of lots of different things, but it doesn't look exactly the same as the US. Um because, I mean, for example, if you're sitting in Asia, most of our boards are comprised of what America calls people of color, right? Because <laughs> they're we're all in Asia. Asia. <laughs> we're in Asia. So I get to be a diversity candidate <laughs> once in you're a while. The diversity, yeah, you're the diversity hire. That's funny. Yeah. I find it fascinating that way because, you know, as the tall white guy with the beard, you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, I'm for various reasons, a part of the majority of like, especially in startup land. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, I, I see the, um, the, the, the bent. So I like the way you put it. It's the diversity of thought is the thing that's the, the most important when it comes to a board and a p- group of people that are trying to make something happen. That diversity of thought, you know, like <laughs> I always say, like, you know, okay, let's say you just picked everyone that went to the Ivy League, but they all look different. Well, they're all going to have the same attitude, right? They're going to have, I went to the Ivy League, therefore I'm the smartest person in the room more often than not, right? That's not a, that's not the diversity of, you know, growing up in different places, et cetera. So I like, I like that. That's that, like the, the, how we could get to this diversity of thought. Cause in, in entrepreneurship, this is also important for when you're first starting and you're growing, as you mentioned, scale and everything, you know, you get locked into your worldview and you think because you're successful yesterday that that's going to carry you through. And really what got you there is not going to get you where you need to go. And someone's got to tell you that. And you got to like hear it from someone that you're going to be like, yeah, you're right. It's interesting though, because one of the things I notice is that I do think entrepreneurs are super resilient. So having started life primarily as a consultant, one of the things that we've learned to do is pick apart problems and challenge stuff. And so I think that's helpful when I'm on a board, but it um, it also means that we're often challenging or you know almost criticizing. And I do think entrepreneurs have to have a little bit more resilience. I talk about stamina in the book too um, than other people, because if you listen to all that kind of outside picking Right. I think some of it's helpful, but at a certain point you have to say, gosh, like 
there's so many problems with my business. I, I must, I better give up. And then you're not an entrepreneur. So there's some ability that entrepreneurs have to say, okay, I'm taking that in. I'm thinking about it, but I have enough resilience, enough stamina to say, okay, I'm, I'm listening. I'm going to think through what I want to respond to, and I'm going to keep going. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned the consulting kind of picking. I like that word. Like they just pick it every little knit. Cause I'm doing that like right now in my day job is I do consulting for B2B companies, like basically complex sales stuff, go to market sales and marketing stuff. And it's interesting. Cause when we talk, I have a different attitude cause you know, I've got more of the entrepreneur mindset and I'm sort of new to this whole consulting thing, but yeah, there's some people that I, that I work with that I'm like, is anything ever going to be okay with you? I mean, is everything that screwed up? Like, really this, like the, the whole ship's on fire, like you're a $250 million company. Like really it's that bad. And, and, and now that you mentioned that, I'm like, it's that consultant mindset. It's the pick it apart. I, I what, where does that come? Is that just the way y'all are trained or what, what's the, what's the impetus of that? Because that's really frustrating for people. And, and I think as an entrepreneur, if you have to bring people like your board says, oh, you got to talk to this consulting company as an example, which happens, we get brought in all the time to come fix things. The knowing that attitude is super important. So where does it come from? Any, any idea? So I don't, I don't think it's an attitude. Like I don't think consultants want people to fail, but we are trained to solve problems. So normally, you know, and I think it's called MBB now, McKinsey, BCG Bain or whatever, the MBB firms, the big, you know, firms that started out primarily as strategy firms, the way you're trained is a client comes to you with a problem. You know, customers don't like my bank. What is, you know, how do I um, change, <clears throat> I don't know, custom, lower customer acquisition costs and raise NPS. And you start thinking, okay, what could it be? I mean, this is antiquated, but let's say, you know, cues in the bank, app doesn't work. Um ATMs are broken, I, whatever it is, you know, you start thinking, what could it be in creating, um, you know, charts of possible issues and trying to resolve them. So I think consultants see themselves as problem solvers and that you do get trained that way. And my, you know, not getting too personal, but my husband reminds me occasionally, like he'll tell me about an issue and I just go right into solving it. And he's like, I don't want you to solve it. I just want you to listen. <clears throat> I need you know, to be but heard. I, yeah, I just need to be heard. I don't actually want an answer because I'm not sure oh. I like your answer. I just, oh, I love it. You know, see, so you it. are trained to break yeah. these things into modules. And I think right. it helps you solve problems. Right. But I think it does mean that if you're trained that way initially, maybe everything comes across as a problem and you start trying to solve it. So what I meant about picky is kind of picking it apart. And so I think that there's really positive attitude for most consultants, which is I'm trying to help you solve it, but maybe sometimes not everything is a problem. And until you go from, I was um, fortunate that I worked not that long, but five or six years before I became a consultant. And then I've been an operator for you know decades since I was a consultant. So one of the first things that happens is you go, oh, I have much more empathy when I get to the other side about how things really work. You know, or the, there were days where I you know, I've asked the client for this data. How come they can't give it to me? Or they're not, they're withholding it. Well, of course, their systems don't actually, you know, they should, it would be good if they did, but their systems don't spit it out for you. So you end up with more empathy and you also understand not everything has to be solved. I mean, a really interesting thing that I've seen in tech firms is that everyone talks about tech, tech debt and solving it. But most of the time I've found, especially now when we're trying to all do more with less because it's now not about growth, but about EBITDA, 
you can't actually solve all the tech debt. You're going to have to leave some of it there in order to grow. And I don't, you know, there may be other people who disagree with me, but I, I have come to that conclusion. And so a consultant might look at it and go, oh my gosh, look at all this debt. You know, we've got problems in the system. We need to deal with it now. An entrepreneur might say, I'm not solving any of it. I'm just kind of like hope, hope that the band-aids work and grow the hell out of this thing. You know, and a board member might ask you to be somewhere in the middle saying like, I get that we can leave some of it there. Um, you know, we're sitting in Australia where there've been a ridiculous number of hacks in the last month, including the Department of Defense, our second largest telco. And you might say, okay, some of this we can leave. Some of it, I think we better address. So you get these myriad mindsets, which as you say, come together, give you diversity of, of thought. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. Um, a lot of a lot of times tech startups, you know, they get, especially if you're a technical founder, you know, I used to be an engineer, so I like love solving problems and I love like, oh my gosh, this shell nuts, we have to upgrade to the latest and greatest. And you're kind of like, yeah, well, like when you do that, you're going to break this thing and I can't break, don't break it now because we need to scale it. And if it's broken, it doesn't scale. So yeah, we're going to hold off on this massive re-architecture because we're going to go to the latest and greatest thing. And it, I, I mean, you mentioned something about, I don't know, I don't know if like the confidence that the entrepreneur has to have or the employee or how, how can you filter through all these things? Because I can see, you know, having a diverse panel of mentors or people like small council or a kitchen cabinet. And, you know, depending on what the expertise is, of course, listening to that. But are there any things in the book that allow you to sort of like filter through like how, you know, you mentioned the technical debt's a great example. When do you just say like, yeah, I'm, that's not a priority? Is there a way to do that? Or, you know, how how, how does that work in, in your mind? Yeah, I'm not sure I've given a framework that says, you know, here's how to filter out noise from what you should be listening to. I think I'm not sure that that is a... Um, I'm sure a coach would say I'm wrong, but like, I don't know if that's a teachable skill. I think <laughs> what I do talk a lot about is stamina. And by the way, before I get to that, I just want to say, I know you were making a little bit of fun of consultants and you're saying you're new to it, but actually consulting firms love to hire engineers because engineer, like, like many people, but engineers are great problem solvers. Oh yeah. So you may have more in common. I know. Think. I'm sure I do. Cause I mean, it was funny because I had this one mentor, mentor, I've worked with him forever and known him for like over 20 years. And I remember I was giving a presentation to a, to a big company, to the CEO of the, of the company in this massive trouble meeting whole, I mean, like it, you know, and I'm an engineer, I'm focused on, we have all these problems. We got to fix them all. And I literally led with the problems like this, this is, and everyone's like looking at this going, this seems really screwed up. Like what's going on? I'm like, no, no, everything's going great. And he's, he looks at me, he's like, you're not telling the whole truth. All you're focused on is their problems. People are going to think you're an idiot. <laughs> and when I, that clicked, I'm like, because I would always think, oh, they're just, you know, especially marketing and sales folks, you know, marketing, welcome to marketing, two drink minimum. Here's your, <laughs> here's your hat, you know, go. They're just going to spin, 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 spin. And they never tell the truth. And they lie and quote, unquote, to engineers, they lie, right? What they realized, and he made me realize it's like, you have to tell the whole truth, the good and the bad. Just don't focus on one thing, and I think it's fascinating that you're to your point about yeah. If you're if you're always focused on solving problems, you're going to see a problem in everything. And just how do we break ourselves out of that? 
especially, you know, founders that are technical? So I don't know that you can break yourself out of that. I think that goes back to having some people around you, not the moral support people, but the board of directors to remind you. I do talk a lot about stamina and I, I wrote an equation for this book. I'm I'm working on getting it to the you know E equals MC squared level of uh, you know popularity and uh, and uh, prestige. I don't think it's going to get there, but I wrote stamina equals perseverance plus enthusiasm, and I think that that holds for founders as well as for um, employees. And the reason I think the enthusiasm is there is you know we talk about grit, we talk about perseverance. Really, even for an entrepreneur, I think you cannot get up every day and grind it out. I mean, people talk about grit. You can grind it out for a little while, but at some point it becomes, I think, impossible. And, you know, after the pandemic and I think a newfound and possibly very important focus on mental health and wellness, you know, there's a point at which you lose it if it's just just grinding it out. So I think you have to have some enthusiasm with it. And I don't have a great entrepreneur example, although I think most entrepreneurs have to do this all the time. Um, I, I do know one um, recently where they were very, very close to a trade sale, would have made them and their co-founders rich for life, you know, and the acquirer started kind of tightening the screws on terms and wanting to do things with the business that the founder didn't agree with and and that the founder walked and that took a lot of perseverance right and there was a like big discussion with the co-founders about their ethos and why they had founded this company and um, you know, the, the, the acquirer wasn't going to do anything illegal or unethical. They were just going to, I guess, basically pull the company in. And I don't want to disclose it because it's, it would yeah, be yeah, yeah. You, don't but, need to, but you know, move yeah, the company in a direction that was not what the founders really felt was important. That was a really big step where they needed resilience, stamina. Um, another one that I see a lot in startups and this is interesting, maybe from a founder point of view, I can get, tell you this story. It's in the book, but not disclosed. I knew somebody at a startup, young woman. Um, somebody had asked me to talk to her and she was like, well, I need your advice because I'm leaving this startup. I'm like, okay, why? Well, I I was you know, the most senior person in sales and they're bringing in a head of sales. I'm like, okay. She's like, you know, I'm 27. I've been working for six years. I'm, I'm really good at this. And, uh, you know, this is demeaning and demoralizing. So I was already, I'm way older than that now, but I was even older than that then. And I said, okay, so I get it. I said, I happen to know the person who's coming in over you. And um, actually he's really amazing because I worked with him somewhere else and he really likes to develop his people. So one thing I you might want to think about is do you, can you kind of muster the stamina to stay in there? Like you can always quit, but you could hang out a little bit now and see, because the thing is, you might learn from him. He might, he invests in his people. You might actually learn something. And, you know, very long story is she stayed. It was a, it was a company that was really, really growing. It's a big company and it's a big company now and very successful. And she stayed, she got promoted twice. The second time she got promoted while was while she was on maternity leave, which I don't think should be worth mentioning, but I think it is still worth mentioning because that doesn't often happen. No. And she went on to become so at the time, I guess it was like a Series C company, maybe. 
and uh, BC. And now she is, <clears throat> she took another job after that. And now she's at a place where they probably should have IPO'd, but it'll be another couple of years where she's the CRO. And my view is she would have not developed that fast or gotten to that stage without this person coming in over her. Cause she had nobody to learn from until then she was, you know, the CEO was busy doing tech stuff yeah. and he was like, just, just go sell some things. And so <laughs> she wanted to do what I've seen many people do, which is when they get layered, they go somewhere else. So they go repeatedly and and that might be something they want to do. That's not a problem. Like I like right. working for smaller companies too, but they go from series A to series A to series A because when it gets bigger or maybe B, they say, I don't like this. I don't want to be layered over. <clears throat> rather than learn from somebody, I'd rather just be in charge and do my own thing. And, you know, that's okay too. I know there's a guy I worked with who just likes being the first person on the ground, the first salesperson on the ground when he yep. works from home well yep. before it was trendy yep. and swans around doing exactly what he wants and just gets sales on and doesn't like structure. And when it gets to having structure, he says, I'm going to go find another seed company because that's what I like. So I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying, if you want to grow and into larger roles or larger companies, I think often you need this stamina, but it's not just perseverance because that's unhealthy and possibly impossible for the long run. It's some sort of enthusiasm where you regroup get your board of directors, get your moral support and go, okay, this sale didn't work in the entrepreneur's case, or I'm going to stay and work for somebody, even though I used to be my own boss pretty much. And I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to enjoy it and learn from it. And then I can keep going in a way that is very productive. Yeah. And there's quite a few examples in the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, actually that's a spot on. I mean, I just laugh like, yeah, I'm 27. I've been doing this for six years. I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> it's like I know what, but we, you know, we laugh because we're older than that. But at, frankly, I think at 27, many well, no, I'm I'm not saying maybe they're listening to this, and you know, they well, might know more than we do at this well, point. Well, yeah, but I'm not saying that I didn't think that when I was that age. But as you know, as elders, <laughs> I'll just call <laughs> us elders. Um, I mean, it's funny because in Silicon Valley. There's there's lots of different you know um, challenges and struggles. One of the things that's interesting right now that a lot of my friends are um, running into is actually age discrimination, where a lot of these engineers that are older, nobody wants to hire them because they're older, quote unquote, right? And it's just funny because I, it's the same kind of thing. Like, look, there's value in the experience, and of course, there's always exceptions to the rule. But I just find it interesting that. I, I love the fact that you said, what can you learn from this? Because that is, that's how I approach it too. Like, how can I learn and grow? And it's, that's just so spot on. So thank you so much for being on the show. This was just so, such a fascinating, just a fascinating conversation. Just, it's just, it's so interesting that you're, you know, in Asia doing all these things and great book. I encourage everyone to pick it up and yeah, have a great uh, rest of the day. Stay safe and uh, keep in touch. Thanks. It was fun. Enjoy the chat. Thanks, Eliza, for being on the show and the interesting discussion about all things career and your uh, adventures abroad. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to uh, finishing up on the book. I started reading it and uh, a lot of interesting, uh, interesting good takeaways. So, as promised, here are some of the takeaways that we uh, talked about and the actionable insights uh, for you to think about. 
Elisa recommends that entrepreneurs, as well as professionals looking to climb the ladder, assemble a team of advisors, your own personal board of directors. Friends and family provide moral support, but your advisors can better provide perspective and advice that will generally help you move forward. And, you know, I mean, this whole kitchen cabinet idea, or, if, you know, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, the uh, small council uh, is pretty vital to just make you feel not so alone or be able to bounce ideas off of. I mean, clearly your friends and family and your spouse and all that, uh, as she, she mentioned, they're the moral support, but you sort of need a, I would say, neutral third party or third party that has your best interest at heart, but then will also tell you what you kind of don't want to hear. You know, sometimes family will be, uh, you know, a little bit too rosy or a little bit too negative, right? Either way. So, you know, figure out those people in your life that you may be able to pull together a little kitchen cabinet. Aliza believes that diversity of perspectives is important for boards in business. Diversity in external characteristics is a proxy for this. So interesting idea. A lot of times we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about that, about, you know, I don't know, Reverse discrimination, this discrimination, that discrimination, you know, um, affirmative action, like all these things that swirl around. But I think fundamentally, if you boil it all up to the top um, and you really think about what's the right thing to do in general, it is to have a diversity of opinions, diversity of ideas, diversity of culture, and just perspective. And, uh, you know, I think that's a decent proxy for that. I mean, it's not the full thing. And of course, people have to have a certain level of competency. But, you know, I've never found a time where not having, you know, all the different people in the room just made the decisions better. So um, definitely look for that and champion that. You know, do it thoughtfully because uh, there's a lot of people out there that got some great perspectives. Eliezer shares her equation for success. Stamina equals perseverance plus enthusiasm. Grit can only take you so far. Finding passion for what you're doing will keep you going. And uh, I actually like this equation. I do think perseverance, grit, uh, all those things are important. But, I mean, if you're just persevering to persevere, <laughs> there's like no passion for it, right? That's pretty horrible. So... That, I think, also boils down to what, what, why are you doing this? What's the reason? What's sort of your internal why? So that's another thing to think about. Like, why am I doing this? Am I, do I really want to like, dedicate my life to this? Do I really want to you know, spend all this waking moments and stress if it's not going to be worth it? So yeah, excellent equation and something to really think about. So there you have it, the actionable insights from my awesome interview with Elisa. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions 
or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com